Welcome to the Willing Minds podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brady Collard, and I'm joined by my co-host and my best friend, Tyler Stewart. Our favorite thing to do is sit with each other, Bibles open, and a fresh cup of coffee in our hands. So grab your own cup and maybe even a Bible if you want to follow along. We invite you into our conversation. Hello, everyone. Today, we, Brady and I wanted to go into more in-depth theological topics, more honed in than um, we'll say last time. Uh, we both had a plethora of bunny trails, although necessary, um, we would argue, hence why we went down them. But um, we also wanted to hone in specifically on two topics that uh, we got to write in our Apostolic Fathers class, which was a class in our undergrad. Um which was mainly between the time of the, uh, I would say, post-Jesus until uh, mid-2nd century, uh, where the age of the apostles um, had commenced, or sorry, had ended, rather. And those that were um, directly affiliated with the apostles uh, and had a relationship with the apostles were also coming to an end. So that's what we call the uh, apostolic fathers. And in this, um, Brady is going to talk about martyrdom today, a necessary topic that we, is often excluded from the modern church, um, and I would advocate would enrich the scripture uh, that we have today as um, more corporately edifying and something that we get to, and Brady will exfoliate as uh, universally um, more loving and generous to I would just say what we are privileged not to have to experience. Um, and that's, and he'll get into whether or not that is fortunate or unfortunate, but, um, and then I will bleed into that and as directly as a cause for uh, the means that bleeds into my paper. So uh, martyrdom obviously caused apostasy, which is the topic of my paper uh, between the first and third century. So, uh, and I'll get into that over what apostasy is and the theological understanding of what the main thesis of my paper for the great apostasy. So, um, Brady, if you could begin in uh, educating us on what martyrdom is and uh, then delve into your thesis and what your paper entails. Yeah, so I guess we can start with uh, definitions. The martyrdom is a Greek word, uh, And when translated into English, it literally means to witness. Uh, So there's a couple uh, aspects to that witnessing. The first being that uh, through martyrdom, uh, you are witnessing to the world. Uh, Usually martyrdom takes place in a public setting. And so everyone uh, that is present at that event is exposed to some kind of uh, witnessing and, you know, through the paper and through what we're going to talk about, we'll uncover what that witnessing entails and what it means. Uh, I think different groups uh, will define that witnessing differently. Jews will define it one way. Christians will define it a different way. Uh, but there's some kind of public witness that is being made. The other aspect to witness is that uh, it is congregational while you are witnessing to the world uh, for all those who are present to 
to see what's going on. And then they walk away with some kind of uh, either proud of what they've done or remorseful of what just took place. It also happens at a more local and particular level within the congregation, uh, whether that's a Jewish or Christian congregation. Uh, the purpose of martyrdom is to bolster the congregation, uh, to point them towards, uh, if it's the Christian church, to point them towards Christ, or if it's a Jewish congregation, to point them towards being faithful to Torah. And both of those things are important to keep in mind that there is this uh, public witness, but there's also a congregational witness, and each party uh, receives something different from that. And the motivations behind those things, again, as we'll see, differs from the Jewish to the Christian context. But um, I guess after giving a, I guess that would be a literal definition of martyrdom when looking at the word. Uh, Again, martyrdom is a Greek word when translated into English means to witness. Uh, When we're talking about, okay, what is martyrdom? Uh, it's the oftentimes, as I said earlier, it's the public execution of a believer. Um, our secular context kind of has stolen that definition. I think uh, oftentimes we point at people being a martyr uh, if they have not even if they've died, but if they have suffered for a cause. And it doesn't have to be a religious cause. It doesn't have to be a cause of faith uh, or even maybe a cause of conviction. But as long as there is some kind of suffering for a cause, then our secular context kind of points and says, that's the definition of martyrdom. I think the Jewish and early Christian definition of martyrdom is a lot more strict than that. And it... uh, it defines itself in the context of dying and dying for faith and dying specifically for God. Well, would you say that in a social context, I guess in the West at least, um, that when you say, oh, you're being a martyr, that it's actually the antithesis of what it means in your paper um, in a sociological form that it's almost self-edifying. Yeah, it's... Uh, And that's another thing is that in our secular context, uh, we talk about martyrdom as victim. If we point and say this person is a martyr or oftentimes in our context, we're pointing to ourselves and say, I am a martyr for this cause. Uh, Which is self-edifying because you're highlighting like, look at me because of what I'm doing for. And it's almost humorous when people use that in modern terms. Yeah. And it's, it's victim mentality and it's for the purpose of social benefit. Look at me. I'm a victim. You should be proud of who I am and what I'm doing because, uh, and it's usually associated with some kind of social justice kind of stuff. Um, that's my conservative bias and opinion, (laughs) but that's kind of where this topic gets brought up in our, 21st century Western context. Uh, the first century and prior, even prior to first century context, this, there was no social benefit to martyrdom. You know, mar- like 
because martyrdom is execution, it is the end of your life. And so there is no social benefit that can come from that outside of the witness to congregation and the fact that the congregation might uh, remember you as a person of faith and as a father of your faith, as we'll see with the apostolic fathers. Um, But there was no 0% of social benefit uh, outside of the the congregational community. Well, like that it was viewed as from, from a Roman society of honor, that humility was the antithesis of honor. And if you're going to almost a vice, which is funny to our modern context, but humility is a vice that when you are put on a public stage for martyrdom, that you are offering yourself in humility to one of these deities, not for self edification, but for the glory of God, which, you know, edifies the self, but you're not the one anointing yourself. But that's mm-hmm. the, that idea, that idea of honor is funny too, because, uh, we'll define martyrdom within the Jewish and the Christian context, but the, like the Roman soldier had an idea of honor that was associated with death. Like it was, uh, and most ancient cultures do this as well. Like not only the Romans, but the Greeks, uh, the Viking culture had this idea too, that if you were going to die in battle, there would be great honor in the next life. What sets the Jewish and the Christian, uh, the Jewish believer and the Christian believer apart from that is that there is honor, not in competing in battle, but in surrendering yourself to the forces of, uh, and this is kind of a theological uh, reflection on this idea, but surrendering yourself to the forces of Satan, uh, that Satan who has earthly authority and that's exercised through empires, uh, and in this context, well, uh, we're going to talk about second Maccabees. So that context was the Greeks in the Christian context. It was the, uh, the Romans, but Satan moves through those political empires and surrendering yourself to that authority. So that the name of Yahweh or the name of Christ would be exalted. Uh, that's a different kind of honor. Uh, it's one defined by humility rather than, uh, rather than being victorious in battle. Yeah, so like, I guess when you were put on a stage to die for your choice, that there were certain Romans, and we'll get into at least, I know with my paper, but, and I know in yours, where if you were put on a public stage to die, that there is an honor that was granted to you to a certain extent in that same Roman honor uh, complex or paradigm that, they are willing to die. And that's why they sometimes didn't even do public ones because people were converting to Christianity and witnessing that. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. So, and usually, and I think that's kind of, there were certainly private executions that took place, but from the, from the Roman perspective, uh, and this is something that's going to be fleshed out in our paper uh, or in my paper that I'm going to talk about. But the the Romans didn't believe in a resurrection. And so from the Roman perspective, if I can execute this person in public, then like there is no 
like this is it. That's the final moment for that person. And my authority reigns supreme. And this person has no means of overcoming the authority that I have because their life is over. And the Roman authority has triumphed over the authority of God is the Roman claim here or the Greek claim for the Jews. Or their, and, their God, right? Right, yeah. That the, Roman, the, the Roman Empire has more authority than your God does. And so I'm going to kill you, and that's a testament to that fact. The Jewish and the Christian reaction to that is twofold. There is a resurrection, and not just a spiritual resurrection, but that includes body as well. So you can do whatever you want to my body, and it's going to be resurrected in fullness and in holiness. So you can cut off my limbs and I will be resurrected with limbs as God intended me to be. The second thing is that uh, judgment is coming for you. That God loves those who are faithful to him and those who work against the will of God. He is going to pour out great wrath and judgment. And so that's how... uh, both the Christians and the Jews uh, put theology to this context of martyrdom, that although the Greek and the Roman Empire have ultimate political authority here on this earth, God has the greatest authority, and he's going to reveal that through a resurrection and then through judgment. Well, before I guess you move into your paper, because we're kind of (laughs) touching on many of the aspects of um, especially with Polycarp, the inner divine intervention. But um, I want to just kind of ask again and f- ask you to flesh out when you said surrender to the powers of Satan, um, that might on the surface seem like a controversial claim. So can you flesh that out as far as what does that look as an action of submitting? Cause you're not submitting your soul and your obedience, but rather you're submitting your, are you saying that you're submitting your flesh to the whatever principality or whatever trial physically that you might have to go through? Yeah, to so this is yeah, this is going to reveal my theological perspective on how I think about uh, what I think about free will, what I think about God's sovereignty, and then what I think about uh, the power that satan has and is allowed to have here on this earth Mm. Uh, when i say submit yourself to the forces of satan i think it's twofold you're submitting yourself to an authority that acts on behalf of satan whether that be the greek or the roman empire Uh, by no means can we look at the roman empire in the uh, context of antiquity and say that they were doing the will of god by no means they were doing the work of Satan. They were actively working against the church. Uh, So if you are going to die at the hand of the Romans without contest, then you're submitting yourself to Rome. And then theologically, you're submitting yourself to the power of Satan. So it happens at a political level, and then it also happens at a physical level. You are allowing your body to be extinguished, and uh, but you, your soul and your spirit remain with the Lord, 
And then that kind of reflects the hope of a bodily resurrection, that while Satan may uh, conquer my earthly body now in the present, God is going to redeem that for his purposes in the future. So it's almost you're unwarranted after reading and with your theology to not hope for a bodily resurrection and that whatever is done in this world, although painful, is a is a moment of uh, glorification mm-hmm. because of your willingness to submit to whatever, you know, empire or whatever power might be used on account of Satan that. Yeah. So I, I guess I'm asking bringing brought forth into this context, and this will get right into your paper. Um, what does that divine intervention look like? Um, upon that glorification with, and you'll get into Ignatius and Polycarp, but, and, and the apostles and most, you know, most importantly, Peter, um, can you establish what, and for these, uh, early church fathers that, because it almost sounds like pacifism is, I guess what I'm getting at. It, uh, it sounds like, how do we even relate that to modern context? And we're not, I'm not saying we should advocate nor in, intend to uh, get into a modern context with this, but when you submit yourself, are you warranted to fight? And what does that fight look like? And to them, it was writing letters, <laughs> encouraging and asking for prayers and encouragement to carry them unto martyrdom. So, I mean, mm-hmm. what, what is your take on the idea of pacifism and martyrdom? The, yeah, so the the Jews and the Christians are going to define that differently. Uh, let's stick. Let's stick with Christians. I mean, you can go okay. into both. But. Okay. Um, the Christians of the antiquity period, and this changes when Constantine becomes emperor. Uh, but the the perspective of the early church was that I don't even think that rebellion and political contest uh, through war and battle was even an option. Uh, They don't have, like you have to understand the diaspora that the Jews were at this point in time spread out over uh, the Middle East and through Greece and through the Roman Empire. And so there is not, when the gospel message spreads, it spreads to a collection of communities rather than one community with a strong force. So the the church at this time has no uh, political standing, and it definitely doesn't have an army. And so the opportunity of fighting back doesn't exist. Like It's not even, I don't even think it appears as thought as something that they considered. Uh, So from a historical perspective, it's not an option. From a theological perspective, I think they had a deep theology about Christ and Christ being an exemplar for how they should live. And you go and you read Paul's letters to the churches. He says to live 
is Christ and to die is gain. To submit yourself in the way that Christ submitted himself is to come to the fullness of what it means to follow Jesus. It is the height of spiritual experience um, to die in the way that Jesus did. There can be no greater honor. There can be no greater pleasure. And there couldn't be a higher mark of what it means to follow Jesus. And so I think they took, and we'll see this uh, looking at the primary text. I think they very quickly developed a theology of the cross and they implemented that theology into practice. And uh, this is is the surprising part about this topic is that martyrdom was longed for and it was desired. And so the idea of fighting against that uh, from a historical and a theological perspective wasn't an option. Um, I think it's important to distinguish, and that's why I asked the question, that there there wasn't an option. I thank you first of all that there, there legitimately wasn't an option. And the, the political realm that we know today, whether Catholic or not, um, if we consider Gregory the first in the 6th century, I believe, as the first pokey guy, um, and I don't mean that antagonistically, I just mean that... Um, the option uh, or rather opportunity for there to be a fight, a legitimate fight. Um, and like you said, with the difference between Jews and Christians, the zealots and what they feel warranted to fight back. Um, we don't necessarily get to need to get into that because this is a Christian context, although derived, but Christ, as we know, reoriented how we think about, um, you know, fighting against those kinds of powers. So, um, if you just want to delve right into um, your paper, we can get this started for your introduction, your thesis, and then uh, we'll get carried away with the win. How about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not so sure. I like that you asked for a thesis. Uh, I don't think a thesis is necessarily clear from the work that I did, and so that probably means I didn't do great work. Uh, But I think it was more of a historical reflection on the topic of martyrdom and then how, uh, I guess if I was to give a thesis, it's that the Jewish experience with the Hellenistic forces of, of Greece kind of set the stage for the Christian understanding of martyrdom, martyrdom. And then, like you just said, Jesus redefines that for us. Uh, And so that's kind of, this paper was a lot more of historical and theological reflection um, than it was trying to make an argument. And so that's kind of going to be my focus here is that let's just look at the primary text. And then if we can make theological conclusions about what these people were thinking in the context of martyrdom, then let's do that. So that's kind of the approach that we'll take. And we'll start with second Maccabees. Uh, So a little context for those of you who are not familiar with the Maccabean literature, this is the intertestamental period. So this is after uh, the closing of the old Testament and before Jesus arrives on scene. And so 
The Jews have returned from exile. They are living in Judea. The second temple has been reconstructed. And then Alexander the Great and his Macedonian Empire spreads throughout uh, the world and spreads into Judea. And so the forces of Hellenism, this kind of pagan, uh, not only pagan religion, but pagan culture that seeps into every aspect of life, is now present in Judea, and it uh, deeply threatens what it means to be a Jew and what it means to follow God for the Jew uh, of this time. Uh, so one thing to say is that according to a certain commentator, uh, his name is Feldman, he says that Second Maccabees, that's a, the book we're going to be looking at, has no status in Jewish tradition, which is not uh, which did not preserve Hellenistic Jewish literature. So this text was written in Greek, which is kind of ironic because the Jews of this time are fighting against the forces of Greece. But Hellen- the Hellenistic culture has made such an impact on Judea and on the Jews that they're now we see them writing in Greek. And so even though they're resisting Greek forces, They've adopted so much of Greek life, and I think, personally, they didn't have an option but to adopt some of those things. And so we see the force of, uh, forces of Hellenism kind of come in and start to influence Judea. And we're going to look at the first excerpt from Second Maccabees chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. It says this, Not long after this, the king sent an Athenian senator to compel the Jews to forsake the laws of their fathers and to cease to live by the laws of God and also pollute the temple in Jerusalem and call it the temple of Olympian Zeus and to call it and to call the one in Jerusalem, the temple of Zeus, the friend of strangers, as did the people who dwelt in that place. So the king is sending uh, a Greek senator to Judea and instructing the people to no longer call the temple uh, the temple or that it belongs to Yahweh, but they're saying that this temple now belongs to Zeus. Harsh and utterly grievous was the onslaught of evil, for the temple was filled with debauchery and reveling by the Gentiles who dallied with harlots and had intercourse with women within the sacred precincts, and besides brought in things for sacrifice that were unfit. The altar was covered with abominable offerings, which were forbidden by the laws. A man could neither keep the Sabbath, nor observe the feasts of his fathers, nor so much as confess himself to be a Jew." So this is the context that the Jews are living in. Their temple is being defiled. And, you know, that should be enough for us. Because if we do any kind of historical work, we know that the temple is the dwelling place of God and is the central feature of Jewish culture. Um, And it's important to note here that we need to hesitate about calling at least in this time, calling uh, Judaism a faith. Uh, it is much more of a culture that impacts every aspect of life than it is a belief statement. Uh, so 
the Hellenistic forces, the Hellenistic influence is impacting not just Jewish faith, but every aspect of Jewish culture and what it means to be a Jew. And that's kind of where that excerpt ends. It says, no one could as much confess himself to be a Jew. Uh, Another historical thing to mention is that there are three distinguishing features of Judaism, and they are Sabbath, kosher, and circumcision. And we're going to see all of those things be threatened by the Greek influence. The Greeks uh, threaten the Jewish practice of keeping Sabbath, of of it being a day of rest. They threaten the practice of keeping kosher, and primarily the way that uh, we're going to see that take place is that Jews are forced to eat a pig, which was against kosher. And then uh, the Greeks threaten the practice of circumcision. And so I think there's an example of all of those in the things I'm going to read here in just a second. And so talking about this context, talking about what's going on, uh, I said at the, at the top that they have returned from exile and geographically that's true. They have left Babylon and they have come back into Judea, but they are still very much in exile because their authorities are pagan and the authorities are threatening the Jewish way of life. And so they are, while they live in Judea, while they live in the Holy Land, they're still experiencing spiritual and cultural exile. So here's another text from Second Maccabees. This is also chapter 6, verses 10 through 11. It says, for example, two women were brought in for having circumcised their children. These women, they publicly paraded about the city with their babies hung at their breasts. Then they hurled them down headlong from the wall. Others who had assembled in the caves nearby to observe the seventh day secretly were betrayed to Philip and were all burned together because of their piety, because their piety kept them from defending themselves in view of their regard for that most holy day. So we see circumcision being threatened. Uh, Two women circumcise their babies and then they're paraded around naked throughout the city and then thrown off a wall. And then there's this community that uh, leaves the city and they go into the caves and so that they can practice the Sabbath. They can practice a day of rest without being recognized. They're betrayed and they don't fight back, not because they have a conviction against fighting back necessarily, but because they are attacked on the Sabbath day and they believe that the Sabbath day is a day of rest. And so they will not pick up a sword to defend themselves. And so they end up being burned alive in order to keep the Sabbath. The next uh, excerpt also comes from second Maccabees. And this is a kind of a theological reflection about what's going on. The author says, Now I urge those who read this book not to be depressed by such calamities, but to recognize that these punishments were designed not to destroy, but to discipline our people. In fact, not to let the impious alone for long, 
but to punish them immediately is a sign of great kindness. So what he's saying is that uh, the Jews have walked away from being faithful to God. And rather than God letting them continue in their sin, he is bringing the Greek authorities to punish and to discipline his people so that they would return back to God. And he says that this is a sign of great kindness. For in the case of the other nations, the Lord waits patiently to punish them until they have reached the full measure of their sins. But he does not deal in this way with us in order that he might not take vengeance on us afterward when our sins have reached their height. Therefore, he, he never withdraws his mercy from us, though he disciplines us with calamities. He does not forsake his own people. So again, this is a kind of this rod and staff kind of analogy that the author is playing on. The God is going to discipline. He's going to punish, but with the means of redemption rather, rather than utter destruction. There is a Jewish commentator who uh, talks a lot about this idea of martyrdom, and he says that there were Jewish thinkers at the time who believed that martyrdom was an atonement for sin committed in this or a previous life. I'm going to read that again. An atonement for sin committed in this or a previous life. So he's saying that the Jews kind of incorporated this idea of martyrdom into their understanding of the sacrificial system. They have in Leviticus a detailed uh, instruction on how to sacrifice so that their sins may be cleansed. And now within this context of martyrdom, they anticipate that the sacrifice of themselves acts as an atoning sacrifice so that God would no longer look on them with sin. Their sins are cleansed because they're willing to die for God. Do you, do you know what it means by previous life there? Uh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I, if I had to speculate, I would think that what Boyarin, that's the commentator, what he's trying to say is that uh, the Jews in the present who are being persecuted are atoning for the sins of their ancestors in the past. Uh, if I had to speculate, that would be what I think he means by previous life. Uh, but that's a good question. He continues, he says, the notion not by itself remarkable that the oppressive empire is God's whip, so it's a tool which God is using to discipline, raises the question of resistance to a high theological pitch at the same time that it reinstates a rather simple theodicy, as we shall see. The rabbis, like Job's friends, cannot stand the thought of a God who punishes without cause. So what he's saying is that God is punishing for a purpose. And if you are going to resist that, then you are resisting the will of God. So this was certainly a thought by some Jews, but it's important to point out that in this context, there was a plurality of Jewish thought. 
there were the Sadducees, there were the Pharisees, there were the Zealots, there were the priests, and they all had different uh, understandings of how to respond in this kind of situation. Uh, this idea that you should not act against the will of God here uh, would not have been adopted by the zealots. The zealots would have had different motivations. They would have fought against the forces of Greece. And you see that kind of take place with the uh, with Jacob Jacobus Maccabeus. He's the one who leads the Maccabean revolt. And so they actually take up arms and fight against the Greek empire uh, and end up winning that victory. But uh, that was not, again, you see different perspectives arising from this context. There's a plurality of thought on how to deal with this issue. Uh, so I'm going to keep reading from Second Maccabees. Elitzer, one of the scribes in high position, a man now advanced in age, I think he's 90 at the time that uh, this account takes place, and of noble presence was being a force to open his mouth or was being forced to open his mouth to eat swine's flesh. So again, we've seen uh, circumcision compromised. We've seen Sabbath compromised. And now we're seeing so kosher being uh, compromised, but he welcoming death with honor rather than life with pollution so death with honor rather than life with pollution, you see the contrast there, went up to the rack of his own accord, spitting out the flesh as men ought to go who have the courage to refuse things that is not right to taste, even for the natural love of life. Those who were in charge of that unlawful sacrifice took the man aside because of their long acquaintance with him. So somehow this man, this rabbi, uh, or he's not a rabbi, but he is a scribe is what it says. He's a Jewish scribe and he's friends with the Greek authorities. Because of their long acquaintance with him, and they privately urged him to bring meat of his own providing proper for him to use. So they're saying bring meat that's kosher and pretend that he was eating the flesh of the sacrificial meal, which had been commanded by the king, so that by doing this, he might be saved from death and be treated kindly on account of his old friendship with him. So they're telling him, bring meat that's, that you're allowed to eat, and we're going to pretend that it's pig, and that's going to make everyone happy, and you can continue to live. But making a high resolve worthy of his years and the dignity of his old age and the gray hairs which he had reached with distinction and his excellence of, and his excellent life even from childhood. And according to the holy God-given law, he declared himself quickly, telling them to send him to Hades. So he looks at these people and he says, I have lived a dignified and a pure life since the time that I was a child. So I understand that you're asking me to do something that uh, to act in a way of deception. And by doing that, I won't be breaking kosher. But even that deception would defile my name. And so, you know what? You can pour the wrath of Hades upon my body. I'm going to stay faithful to God. 
and he ends up dying for his faith. So that's the context uh, that uh, all this occurred maybe 160 years before Jesus arrives on scene. And so this idea of martyrdom is uh, of high importance and of high relevance at the time that the Gospels took place and were written. Uh, Important to note that it's no longer the Greek Empire that occupies Rome, but it is now the Roman Empire that is occupying Rome. But there's Uh, like this marriage, right, between... The Greco, we call it a Greco-Roman world for a reason. That it's yeah. not they they almost did. Romans when they took over it was almost this um, conquering yet uh, amnesty for certain cultures that can remain as long as you give to Caesar, quote unquote, what is Caesar's, right? Yeah, and so that's the the major difference between the Greek and the Roman empires in this context is that the Greeks were wanting to force Hellenism down the throat of the Jews. Uh, And that meant not keeping Sabbath, not keeping kosher, not being circumcised and the temple, which is the focal point of Jewish culture being utterly defiled. The Romans didn't do, didn't act that way in nearly the same degree. They set up, Uh, Roman governors in these different provinces. And as long as you paid your taxes, uh, you got to worship uh, how you chose. And that was pretty much the general rule uh, for a while with great historical exceptions. You see the Roman Empire come and utterly destroy Rome uh, in AD 70. And then again in the hundreds Uh, I think it was like 132 or something like that. So uh, as a general, at least when the gospels were written and when the gospels took place, you could be a practicing Jew. Um, Well, those are in response to revolts. So the Bar Kokhba revolt, I think was in 133 or 132, like you said, and 70 as well with the zealots. So if you were to rise up against a king or claim king, hence why, by the way, Jesus was crucified on account of his being king. Um, that's what, and it was actually an ingenious plan by the Romans to maintain peace, quote unquote, peace for as long as they did when you conquered a people, not to just destroy their culture, but rather, so you can continue to do this, but you're going to pay us and be part of this empire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you see kind of a change in policy. Uh, from the Greeks to the Romans. And then when you see that, you're you're exactly right. When you see that Roman uh, persecution, or at least the Roman uh, march on Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem, it's in response to violent Jews who were raising arms against the Roman authorities. Uh, so we're going to transition to the Gospels now, and those are going to act as a primary text for us as we think about this idea of martyrdom. Uh, And so the first thing I want to point out is that the first, depending on which gospel you read and in the gospel of Mark, the first words that Jesus ever offers to Peter is come and follow me. And this idea of following Jesus is going to be something that continues to pop up throughout the life of Peter. 
And so I'm going to read from Mark chapter 8 and go through uh, just a little bit of chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to out, not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus is defining what it means for him to be the Messiah. Peter, you just confessed that I am the Messiah. That means that I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, you are going to be a different kind of Messiah. You're going to fit in my box. You're going to be the kind of Messiah that I want you to be. And Jesus says, shut up. You're speaking the will of Satan. But the conversation continues. Oftentimes, I think when we hear this text preached, the conversation stops right there. Uh, But this next passage is part of the same conversation. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. There's that follow me language again. And it arrives in the context of not just walking where Jesus walks, but denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following me. Peter's going to realize that following Jesus actually looks like taking up your cross and going to die next to him. Which is the removal of honor. I mean, you get into what the cross meant back then, and it's not a simple, you know, and we've abused it in this, uh, you know, the iconophiles that have produced us. I mean, even I have a cross around my neck, but this, the sanctity, and we've turned this symbol of dishonor into, you know, it's, now our main flagship for christendom so it's the cross itself was a horrendous and horrific way to die both involving torture and a long torture and um the inevitability of death so i I don't think when we read that we should just gloss over it so for for you and what we were talking about earlier it bleeds into what taking up your cross meant and like you said the literal sense of that for Peter, um, presumably, right? But uh, Well, yeah, there's no way of understanding the cross. You know, if we're talking about original audience, original authorship, and specifically in this conversation between Jesus and Peter, there's no way of understanding the cross outside of literal death. Mm-hmm. Like, there is no spiritual sense of the cross here. At this time, the cross only means to physically die an excruciatingly painful and utterly humiliating death. Like, there is no other way to read to read the cross outside of that. 
well, unless we're imposing a 21st century perspective onto the text. Well, and they understood this. I mean, they, they had their own Roman examples of even um, Marcus Licinius back in the, the BC, the century before, and 6,000 or five to 6,000 people were crucified all lining uh, uh, on a way on a, from a city to Rome. So I, it's just, this was in the context of what they understood to mean by the cross. And even, even in the gospel accounts, you don't get this, I guess, response from the disciples that say, oh, they understand that this is the true way until they receive the Holy Spirit, which mm-hmm. is an intriguing contrast. Well, yeah, there's this continual idea in the Gospel of Mark that the disciples are spiritually blind. Uh, And so I think they're blind to the fact of the kind of Messiah that Jesus is going to be. uh, But they're also blind to the fact of what the requirement on their lives are going to be if they're going to follow him. Uh, So Jesus continues, Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with his holy angels. I think this text is absolutely fundamental for how the early church understood martyrdom. And we're, earlier we were talking about Jesus being the model for how we shape and shape our lives as defined by obedience to God. I think this text plays a primary key in their understanding of that. So the only thing from chapter 9 that I would point to is that right after, or not right after, it says six days after this, Uh, So this, from Mark's perspective, this conversation is still on the mind of Peter. Six days after this, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up onto a mountain. Jesus is transfigured. Moses and Elijah pop up. And then we hear a voice from heaven, the Father speaking. And who is is the Father speaking to? He says this in verse 7. This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. So the father's not speaking to Jesus. I don't think he's speaking to Moses or Elijah. He's speaking to the apostles. And I think specifically to Peter. Peter, stop rebuking Jesus. Stop telling him what kind of Messiah he's supposed to be. You need to listen to him. Uh, The... Topic of martyrdom pops up one more time for Peter. Well, it pops up several more times. In Luke's gospel, Peter says, Jesus, I'm going to follow you anywhere. And Jesus responds, and this this is kind of a crazy statement, but Jesus says, Satan has been demanding your soul from me. I'm paraphrasing, but something to that effect. That Satan has been arguing to own you, Peter. And I have bigger intentions for you than that. But know that you're saying that you'll go to prison with me. You're saying that you're going to die with me. Know that you're going to deny me three times. And so we see that take place. 
And then in John chapter 21, we see the reinstatement of Peter. After Jesus is crucified and resurrected, he comes back and asks Peter three times, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then the command is take care of my sheep. And then Jesus uh, tells Peter in verse 18, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And so this is a big point, and it's something that's emphasized in John's gospel. Jesus glorifies the name of the Father when he dies, but God glorifies the name of Jesus because he is willing to die. Glorification is a major theme in the second half of John's gospel. And Jesus extends this to Peter. Peter, you get to participate in bringing glory to God by dying this way. And then we bring in this idea of resurrection. Not only will Peter glorify God by dying, but God will glorify Peter when Jesus comes again to bring us home with him, when the resurrection arrives. And then he looks at Peter and he says these words, follow me. So Mark chapter 1, first words that Jesus ever says to Peter, follow me. John chapter 21, last words Jesus ever says to Peter, follow me. Peter argues with Jesus, Lord, what about this guy? Verse 22, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. I think Peter's finally starting to realize that following Jesus means going to the cross. So that kind of finishes up the Gospels and how the Gospels commentate on this idea of martyrdom. Uh, The next text that we'll look at martyrdom is Acts chapter 7, and I'm not going to read any piece of it. But uh, this is the martyrdom of Stephen. And what we see very quickly is that a theology around the cross arises when Stephen pops up on scene. He says two phrases. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. In Luke's gospel, Jesus said both of those things. And so already this kind of theology and this historical telling of who Jesus was, what he did, and his last moments on the cross are already so ingrained into the identity of the church, that Peter repeats the same phrases that Jesus offered in his last moments. He's praying that God would receive his spirit and then that God would look kindly on those who are executing him. Any thoughts on that? If not, I'm going to move to some extra canonical stuff. Well, I just think it's funny that (laughs) we were talking about one of my classes, um, the Gnostic Gospels, and how you were talking about Peter being accepted um, and accepting and battling with that call. But the Gnostic Gospels, obviously, the Gnosticism being the denial of, we'll just say for simplistic terms, that the earthly realm, um, 
that instead, since Jesus, you know, could not have been crucified, that it was Simon that was crucified in his stead. Um, it's just a, a funny parallel to what these even. I mean, if, if we're assuming that either Gnosticism came out of Christianity or not, it's not what I'm arguing, but it's it's funny to say that. But also sad that they viewed and read the same scriptures and had access to these, but interpreted those texts in such a, a way that um, was almost a replacement of atonement through mm-hmm. what it meant to follow Christ. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's a sidetrack and side point, but those are, I was just thinking of that as you were talking about scripture and Peter's call. But go ahead. Uh, so I'm going to return to the life of Peter. Uh, this is an extra canonical Christian source. It's called the Acts of Peter. And uh, towards the end of Peter's life, he is in Rome. He's imprisoned. And the church goes to him and begs him to escape. And so Peter changes his appearance. He puts on a disguise and he is walking uh, out of the city of Rome. And then the text says this. As he was leaving the city, he saw the Lord. And at this time, Lord is in Christian text transitioning from meaning the father alone to including Jesus as well. So Jesus is being called Lord. And so he's seeing Jesus come down from heaven. And it says that he sees the Lord entering Rome. So Peter's walking one way out of Rome. Jesus coming down from heaven is going towards Rome. When he saw him, he said, Lord, where are you going? And the Lord said to him, I'm going to Rome to be crucified. Peter said, Lord, are you going to be crucified again? Jesus said, yes, Peter, I am being crucified again. And Peter came to himself and having seen the Lord ascending into heaven, he returned to Rome rejoicing and glorifying the Lord. For he said, I am being crucified and that was about to befall Peter. So Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to be crucified again. And then Peter realizes, wait, Jesus isn't talking about himself. He's talking about me. And that kind of shows you the theology of the church, that the church believed that they are the body and blood of Christ. Like they are, the church is the body of Christ on earth. And so Peter's understanding what Jesus is saying. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about me. And so he turns around and he walks back to Rome. How? By rejoicing and glorifying the Lord. I think what Jesus said to Peter was what he said at the beginning of Mark's gospel in chapter one, Jesus is heading towards Rome and he looks at Peter and he says, follow me, follow me to the cross. And Peter finally realizes uh, the call that Jesus has placed on his life. It's like 
a life of witnessing, a life of witnessing to the gospel. And that includes dying to oneself, both spiritually and physically. Um, well, do you think that gets into both back then and today, how we view, should we pursue martyrdom? And of course, in a modern context, I think that that is ill-advised and not what is being taught here. So can you delineate that from what Peter feels in response to being called to martyrdom and what that looks like? So let's, let's go to the early church fathers. Um, So the martyrdom of Polycarp, uh, Polycarp was an early church father for us. Uh, in the account of his martyrdom, it says this, when he saw the wild beasts, it, he's talking about uh, a specific person. So when he saw the wild beasts, he turned into a coward. This was the man who had forced himself and some others to come forward voluntarily so this isn't talking about Polycarp. This is talking about uh, a man named Quintus, I believe. And it says, this was the man who had forced himself and some others to come forward voluntarily. He is voluntarily submitting himself to be executed. The proconsul, after many appeals, finally persuaded him to swear the oath and to offer the sacrifice. What's the oath? What's the sacrifice? The oath is pledging loyalty to Caesar and pretty much confessing that Caesar is God. And then the sacrifice is offering a sacrifice to Caesar. And so he volunteered himself to be executed, and then he freaks out, he gets scared, and he claims that Caesar is God and then offers a sacrifice to Caesar. For this reason, therefore, brothers and sisters, we do not praise those who hand themselves over since the gospel does not so teach. So this is a free will I think choice. That's, I, just what? I just want to highlight that this is a, as you say, voluntary, regardless of whether or not Quintus or whoever this person was forced to them. Um, but I think it's more highlighting that there is a free will choice in, and martyrdom is built on the precipice of, you can choose to accept by, submitting to the powers as we were talking earlier, or you can choose to that, that that it's not a a fate, um, a chance of fate that you are just, Oh, well, maybe I could, maybe I couldn't, you know, I don't know. It's, it's already been decided for me. Right. Yeah. And so I think, I think the way that they would respond is that, or let me say it this way. In this context, there was no walking away from martyrdom. If you're captured, then there are three responses to being captured by the authorities. Either you're going to be a martyr and you're going to be executed, or you're going to uh, praise Caesar as God. So you're going to reject Christ. You're either going to die with Christ or reject Christ. And then there's a third option. Uh, which is the uh, the church called these people the libellatisi, and the root word there is libel, and it's to provide a false, a public false representation of yourself. 
And what these people did, they were wealthy members of the church who would persuade the Roman authorities to provide a certificate. And for those, okay, so for those who uh, offered a sacrifice to Caesar, a certificate was given to them saying that you offered a sacrifice to Caesar, so you're good. You're not a Christian. We know that you're faithful to Rome. We don't have to bother you again. The Labellatici were rich, and they would go to the Roman authorities, give them money, and say, hey, can you manufacture this certificate for me? Say that I rejected Christ, but I'm not really going to reject Christ. You're just going to say that I I did so that I can go back and still be a part of the church, but I don't have to die. The church becomes aware of these things, and there's a whole slew of different responses on how to deal with these kinds of people. Uh, Do we completely reject them? Uh, But that would be a rejection of grace. Uh, Do we have them? This is where the idea of penance first gets adopted into Christian tradition, is that these people should have to, you know, they paid Rome, so they should pay the church something in order to get back in. Um, So those were the three historical responses to being captured by the authorities. And what Polycarp is saying is that you don't volunteer yourself. You know, you either live in freedom or you're captured. Uh, But don't abandon your freedom so that you can potentially be a martyr. Because at that point, you're doing it for its self-service. You're doing it for your own vanity. And the result of that is probably going to be you freaking out and rejecting Christ. Uh, So this is uh, not something to walk into voluntarily. But if you find yourself in the context of, I'm captured and there's no way out, then the Christian response is the faithful Christian response is always submitting to death. Well, I think the point of those labellatici were you're willing to publicly, and that's the the definition you gave earlier about martyrdom is that it is a public um, witness and a, a part of your testimony. Yes. And that, so you're willing to sacrifice your public witness and testimony. Um, so it, it debates what is your real obedience and where is your real identity, regardless of whether or not you're willing, you're willing to submit yourself to a false testimony that overrides. And that's hence the problem because you're, if you're willing to do that, then are you really even a Christian? Because Mm -hmm. it's not, you're not warranted in doing that yet upholding the faith. It is a, but you mean they also argue with Peter and his denial of Christ three times. And they, they'll bring this up in their defense as to why they allowed these people back into the church. But mm-hmm. this isn't, and it, we, we look at the issue, you know, 1,500 years later or even further than that, 1,800, um, as if it's an easy fix. But we need to be careful of our response to penance and some, what we view, because that's our history too, of yeah. Catholic um, responses to things, of the general use of Catholic um, to how, I mean, it's, it's not an easy fix. Even today, if we were to actually be, whether we want to say have the honor of being faced with martyrdom or not, that people would regardless deny. And it's how do we also do with the verse of even the elect will be fooled. And we're not, it's, if we want to make this a salvation issue, we can, 
I don't think that that's where we're called to on earth go. So I think. Yeah. So last thing I'll say, and I've been, we've been talking about martyrdom for way too long. We need to get into your paper, but last thing I'll say is point to the writings of Ignatius and Ignatius almost gets to the point of, we can't have the assurance of salvation. Like we can't be sure that we're going to be saved unless we die a martyr's death. And only then can we be sure that we are truly following Jesus. And then he develops this really high theology of martyrdom. And he says that uh, he tells the church to pray that he has the courage to be a martyr, not to pray for his release, but to pray that he has the boldness of faith to walk into this. And then he says, pray that the lions may chew my body like bread at the offering. And this is like Eucharistic language, and he's making a Eucharistic comparison that Christ offered himself as the bread and the wine for us to remember. And I pray that my body may be used in the same way, that I not only receive the sacrifice of Christ, but that I may participate with Christ in his sacrifice to serve as a remembrance for the church. And so for Ignatius, it's very much about witnessing to the congregation that when the congregation sees the death of Ignatius, they are reminded of the death of Christ and they are reminded of the Eucharist and they get to like physically taste the body and the blood of Jesus. But for Ignatius, the lions get to taste the body, the body and the blood of Jesus, even while they're consuming his, like his body. And so it's, it's very reflective. It's very theological. Uh, We can argue whether or not we should adopt that theology, um, but a very high regard for what happens when we submit ourselves in this kind of way. Well, I think before you, and I really think you should get into and I know you got into this, but with Polycarp and the divine intervention when called, I mean, it's such a beautiful story of his own martyrdom, of Satan's involvement, since he's not omnipresent, his involvement there, and the crowd that incited against him, and how he is, when edified in submitting to the flesh on the account and being called to martyrdom, that... He spared the initial trial, if you will, by fire, quite literally. Yeah, so what happens with Polycarp, he is sitting with his friends in his house, and they get word that the authorities are riding in on horses. And his friends, uh, like the church told Peter, his friends tell him, dude, you need to get out of here. And he says, no. He says, may the will of God be done. And uh, when the authorities get there, it says that they were amazed and many regretted that they had come after such a godly man. Like they see the faith of Polycarp and they're like, frick, like, what did we just do? Uh, This is a holy and righteous man. Um, And then so Polycarp is taking uh, taken into Smyrna. And he's put on public display 
And the text says that, uh, I'm not sure if it attributes it to Satan. I would have to go back and look. Um, but it says that the Jews were stirred up and they participated in this execution of martyrdom. And they brought, they went and gathered wood to be put at the bottom of martyrdom's feet or Polycarp's feet. And so he's tied to a stake with a pile of wood underneath him. He's going to be burned alive. And the fire's lit. And or before that, the text says, uh, having been bound like a splendid ram chosen from a great flock for a sacrifice, a burnt offering prepared and acceptable to God. Does that remind you of Leviticus language? Of course. <laughs> like he's being, the comparison is Polycarp is the sacrifice for atonement. And uh, that's, you know, we're going to step back and say, no, that's only Jesus. The entire point of Polycarp's, of this account of Polycarp is to make a comparison between Jesus and, and Polycarp, and saying that just as Jesus died, so did Polycarp die. Uh, The thing to point out here is that Christians, Jesus and then the early Christian tradition completely redefined uh, martyrdom from the Jewish context. So this language completely dismantles the theology of 2 Maccabees, which teaches that martyrdom is the method of God's punishment. Uh, But rather here, we see the text emphasize that Polycarp's death was a sacrifice that was pleasing to God. And then just a final comment on uh, Polycarp. It is evident that in the narrative, there are numerous apparent parallels between the arrest, the trial, in the execution of Jesus in the experiences of Polycarp. In the opinion, in the opinion of many, these parallels provide the key to understanding Polycarp's martyrdom as an imitation of the passion of Jesus. But in fact, the concept of imitation, which could lead to a focus on the martyr, is subordinate to the idea of following after. Same language that's given to Peter, follow me which emphasizes more the concept of faithfulness and obedience to God's will and whatever that looks like. So as Jesus was crucified, we are to follow after him and ourselves be offered as a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. So I need to stop talking. That was way too long on martyrdom. Uh, It's time for you to to get into yours. Well, I think first and foremost, it's a topic not well acquainted amongst the modern church in the West. And I think it's an important topic and it's, it's part of our church's history. And if people want to constantly say in this modern time that the, you know, world's going to hell in a handbasket. Um, and I've, I've even had Christians come up and tell me I'm ready to, I'm ready to be martyred. And it's almost slanderous the way they abuse it. Um, we should not seek it out because God will call us to it. If the time arises, we're not going to go to places if not called just to be butchered for self education Mm -hmm. purposes. Um, 
And Brady, I want to read this. Uh, it's the ending of the martyrdom of Polycarp. And it kind of displays, and I'm, I'm sure you've talked about this in your paper, but I want the, those listening um, to hear this, this wonderful language of this separation that even Satan knows that he cannot um, conquer upon um, inciting this crowd, inciting the martyrdom, but at the same time, he, he just ended up glorifying God, um, which is <laughs> for him inadvertent, but um, inevitable for the strong and faithful believers. So in the martyrdom of Polycarp, which is the letter or the description account that we get um, beginning in chapter 17, he says, but the jealous and envious evil one, the adversary of the race of righteousness, when he observed the greatness of Polycarp's martyrdom, and the irreproachable character of his life from the beginning, and realized that he was now crowned with the crown of immortality and had won a prize that no one could challenge, saw to it that not even his poor body should be taken away by us, even though many desired to do so, to do this and um, to touch his holy flesh. And they get into where they, what happened to his body, but I think that the acknowledgement that the anger that incited um, within Satan or whoever this power is, if we're going to call him Satan or not, could not touch the immortality that Satan himself had lost, uh, which is a beautiful contrast of divine intervention. Oh, yeah. And talking about divine intervention, that immortality idea that's given to Polycarp. And obviously, like we attribute that to the resurrection that he is going to experience when Jesus finally comes back. But for Polycarp, that kind of starts before he was ever he ever died. And the account says that when the fire was lit, that his body was not consumed by the flames, but it was like bread being baked in an oven, mm. and that his body was like like being refined and being uh, like built up by the fire. So like the the fire didn't consume Polycarp. And they actually they had to end up uh, stabbing him in order for him to die. And so God, uh, much like the account in Daniel chapter three, God preserves those who are faithful from the flames. And you can make an entire kind of mm-hmm. theological <laughs> discussion on us being preserved from the flames. Uh, but God does that in Daniel chapter three. He does that for Polycarp and uh he preserves Polycarp from the physical anguish that he would experience from the flames. And then obviously in all of these Christian texts, there's always the hope of resurrection. And uh, the one piece of debate for Christian theology on martyrdom is, uh, and you see this vary between which text you're reading and which historical account. Uh, But there is either, and I think I think Paul, the account of Paul's death in the Acts of Paul is the most clear about this. Paul is clear that there is going to be a resurrection and that he's going to be uh, brought to life in Jesus. But he's also clear judgment is coming for you. And so you need to repent and you need to figure this out because God is going to come full of vengeance and full of wrath because you are crucifying me. And so it's a... He's preaching gospel, he's preaching the good news of Jesus, but he's doing it as caution and warning, saying that God's going to come back and he's not happy with you 
because of what you're doing to me. So you need to figure this out. And I think that's kind of the message of Revelation, is that the church lives in the context of persecution and that God is going to come back. He's going to judge the earth and he's going to resurrect the saints. And I think that's the major message of, Re- of Revelation. Um, anything else on martyrdom that you'd want to talk about? Well, no, I could just transition on the axis that our papers are intertwined um, and related and espoused in a cause and effect relationship that, and by implication, if presented with the, the free will choice, we'll say, to abandon faith. And Brady kind of painted out, uh, you pointed out that there's, yes, there's a choice, but it's also distinguished between whether or not you're called to it or not. Um, but apostasy is the rejection. Those who, and I, I need to highlight that if the thesis of my paper is discussing this great apostasy prophesied in scripture and... Um, Real quick, define for us, you had me define martyrdom, define apostasy. Yeah, I, I'm about to. Um, okay. So this great apostasy defined and prophesied by New Testament authors and as well as uh, some certain apostolic fathers um, that Brady mentioned and I'll add a couple others, but... It kind of, I am not saying by any means that this is not a, that this is a historical event marked by a single time and place, rather it is a continuation, just like martyrdom, although we don't see it in the West, there just as if there is martyrdom um, being presented, then there's also going to be a choice to reject um, or to abandon the faith. And the word apostasy, What's the word? Epistasia, um, which is the root word that means abandon or uh, um, we'll, we'll use the word abandon, uh, the faith. So apostasy itself is built on the premise of this. And in the Christian context, it means that once coming to faith, and we'll get into the language of Hebrews later, but once coming to faith, experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit, experiencing the cross, uh, and the, the atonement and uh, repentance and the new life aspect of Paul's theology and his epistles, then there's a separate process of questioning, denying, and rebuking the faith and identifying with the faith. And that's what apostasy is and what the, the way we're going to talk about it. And this great apostasy is, we'll say, prophesied, and we'll go to the most uh, notorious text, and I say notorious in the sense of how it can be abused. Um, and so it's from 2 Thessalonians, and we'll, I'll just read verses uh, 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 7. Um, and I'll begin with 3 in the NRSV. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion, so rebellion and abandonment for the apostasia um, is, the, is the language that we're finding for this word comes first and the lawless one is revealed. So if we're, this is where the Antichrist language comes from. So there's also eschatological means for what this continued um, apostasy is to mean, and I'll get into that in just a second, is revealed and the one destined for destruction. Verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but only until the one who restrains it is removed. So what I'm arguing in my thesis for this paper was, 
I'm not pointing to a specific event that this mass rebellion, as Second Thessalonians talks about, uh, happens, and we can point to that and say there's this great apostasy. Um, I'm not trying to argue with the Church of Latter-day Saints, um, which, you know, modern-day, what they want to be called is Mormons, um, in the rejection of 1,700 years of church history to say that once the apostles died, the church's lights went out, quote-unquote, and they all entered into apostasy trying to figure out what to do with response um, to Christ and the apostles' teaching. So if theologically, if theology within of itself is our response to revelation, those who entered and apostatized, their theology and their response to the word is they viewed their life as worth more than whatever the teachings in taking up their cross was. And that's essentially in right. Yeah, go ahead. And that's the, that's the message of Jesus in Mark. Whoever saves their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Right. So, and that's the, that's the main point I'm trying to drive. I'm not, and this is also within the context, and I should need to add this, is within the context of the first through third centuries that I'm not continuing the conversation into. I will say this. Apostasy, as long as there's martyrdom, as long as there's false teaching, as long as there is a human free will choice while here in this temporal realm before Christ returns, there will be those who decide in their response to theology after experiencing God, very important, after becoming believers, choose to walk away from the faith. That there wait, so does that contradict a once saved, always saved salvation? <laughs> I believe that once saved, you are saved if there's not an active rejection. And I think God will deliver you unto your free will. Um to step on <laughs> to step on any of the Calvinists, that there is a partnership. Um, you wouldn't have the James and Paul debate without that the Calvinists like to highlight without itself pointing out that there's a free will choice, that it demands that you act this way. Okay, well, if you're not acting this way and if you're not sinning, then it's like, well, what's the point of James's um, letter if there's a, not the free will actualization of what we can and cannot do? So I'm, I'm not going to segment down that bunny trail, but I am saying that there is a consistent. So as long as you have this, and not pointing to a historical event, that there is a, a prophesied great apostasy. And I, as we look in within the first to third centuries, I'm making the case that there is a strong evidence of apostasy, but that there is a continued actualized church within this, and there's an orthodox church developing out of um, false teaching, heresy, and, um, and the common joke is that orthodoxy owes its origins to heresy. So, but... Mm-hmm. It, the main point is that there is this church is unified for the most part. And that, so the claim that you're making is that this great apostasy that's talked about in second Thessalonians is not in the time of the first through third century is not a historical event. Yeah. I'm not advocating and you can, you can point to responses and I'll get into the historical evidence of that. There are responses that, creating an environment conducive to allow a vast or a higher percentage of people walking away than in previous times. But I'm not saying that it is done and over with, and it is a fulfilled prophecy. Um, or, and I say prophecy loosely there that it has been talked about and 
means for the Antichrist and for Christ to return, for the Antichrist to come to power, for Christ to return. Um, and I'm not also getting into the eschatological debate between those things. I'm merely presenting what took place and what environment allowed with it between the first and third centuries for apostasy um, at a widely known rate um, within the apostolic father period. So um, I'm going to get into scripture first so that we can get means for scriptural foundations and um, admonitions against uh, apostasy itself. Um, and I break it down into three major categories, persecution, false teaching, and pride of life. And so I'll get into that after I give um, validation from scripture and from uh, the apostolic father writing. So we find first and foremost in Matthew 13, 20 through 21, and as it reads in the parable of the sour, as for what it was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet such a person has no root, but endures only for a while. And when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, that person immediately falls away. And this is also in Mark 4 and Luke 8. Um, further in Matthew 10, Jesus states that everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny. There is a relationship that when you acknowledge Christ, and you deny, so and it kind of gets into what we're talking about with Peter previously, that he denied, yeah, we all believe Peter saved, but it's his response, and that there's a free will partnership with how you respond to God. And the parable of the sour has pretty obvious parallels to those being persecuted, and the whole, you know, what martyrdom is built off of, and mar persecution is not a foreign concept for them, that it is present, and those who are weak in their faith, and we'll say, and you could say, not very responsible for what they know, but they know enough to be saved, but they reject it in the face of persecution because they don't know the full weight of what is being taught in the Gospels. And I say most poignantly, there is a, in Matthew's um, apocalyptic detail and of account of what Jesus said about this fall is one of the most profound um, for this teaching, a false teaching and um, the falling away. Then they will hand you over to be tortured and you will be put to death and you'll be hated by all the nations because of my name. Then many will fall away and they will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures will be saved till the end. This is kind of highlighting yet again that there is a continued flow. It's not the abandonment, that there, there's going to be this apostasy. It's going to end in massacre of the church. There's a continued development. Yet there will be people who will fall away due to false teaching. There will be people who will fall away so that they are not tortured or put to death. If you had to take one takeaway from that, it is not the denial of or. or silencing of an entire people or church and so in this passage we hit you know the persecution false teachers and pride of life all in one passage um but for time's sake i want to continue on um false teaching is pretty obvious and we get into and i say obvious in a more <laughs> lackadaisical sense that 
if there is these these believers and um, within the first two centuries that have been have heard and witnessed, you can imagine because of human nature that people can manipulate the word of God and people continue to do this until today. Just like the prophecies of false teachers that they exist in, as we get in Jude and we get in Second Peter, there are plenty of warnings about false teachers. It is a continued effect that as long as and before Christ returns, and even after Christ returns, if we take a premillennial view, that there will be the presence of false teachers. There will be the presence of those who reject Christ after coming to him. It is not a significant, or there are events in history where this is taking place, but it is a continued. It has already been fulfilled, but in and is being fulfilled, is the point I'm trying to hit home. And it's, it's where Christ says in, in Luke, where the, the whole, you know, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets, and but he will say, I do not know where you come from. Go away from me, you e- all you evildoers. That's where that false teaching as a, as a damning act, um, where Jesus expels those people um, and he will judge those people. Now, pride of life, and the reason why it sounds like a more ambiguous phrase, comes from 1 John 2.16. And the phrase you could argue is in English translations, boasting of life. And it is kind of what I was talking in the response to theological um, responses to God and how we choose to reject that there is a, a point where you decide for yourself that there is, I value my own life or there are, there are idolatrous means and outputs by which you can have a pride of life where simply you value your life and you're not willing to take up your cross. And I, there's no need to complicate that any further. Yeah. And I think that's, I think, you know, our last episode, we talked about being hesitant to make applications or doing all the work and then making applications. But if we were going to move this conversation into an applicable one, I think we struggle with false teachings, but not nearly as much as this pride of life issue. And who are we, who are we submitting to ourselves or who are we submitting to as Lord? And I think we, I think we emphasize Jesus as savior, uh, but I don't think we acknowledge Jesus as Lord nearly as often. And I think we elevate ourselves to that position. And so that would very much fit in line with this kind of, pride of life being the reason for our abandoning the faith. Right. And in, in that abandonment of the faith, there's in the context of what Brady was talking about in martyrdom and otherwise that they're as these apostles and those closest and their own disciples are dying and being persecuted. I mean, some, most of them, a lot of them did die just of natural causes or, but as this generation is moving from and the mantle of leadership is being passed down to the next generation, they're having to hold on to the church and now they're having to collect all these teachings. And by the, you know, it's a myth that by the end of the first century, we didn't have a somewhat uniform, uh, can that there was the present existence of the gospels. And there was a known fact about our response to these works. And so now they're having to congeal that together and have and formally respond to the apostles and those disciples themselves. And Polycarp was one of those supposedly to John, the apostle um, in the, in the moving century. So 
as these lights are supposedly going out, these apostolic fathers are having to congeal everything together and say, this is the unified church. So um, I want to bring up a few uh, epistle passages. Um, and you get in 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, someone will renounce the faith by paying attention to deceitful spirits and teaching the demons. Um, and in 2 Timothy 4.3-4, for the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to truth and wander away into myths. So this is in response to prophesying over um, future heresies that are to arise, as well as, um, we'll say, pride of life, clearly, uh, and contorting the gospel into suiting, quote, your own desires. Um, and again, Second Peter and Jude both give account of the warning and dangers of uh, false teachers um, and those who utilize these the gospel for their own advantage, which is, to the untrained ear, is hard to discern, but at the same time, to those trained, it's a very easy thing to discern when you're denying doctrines of the Trinity. Um for some, after Second Thessalonians, where this falling away, this gets into one of the more difficult parts of my essay, and these are the two warning passages in Hebrews. And I want to hear Brady's commentary after I read these passages. But this is establishing the spiritual response to apostasy and those who apostatize in response to persecution, false teaching, or um, pride of life. So Hebrews six four through six states. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have been once enlightened and having tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away since on their own they're crucifying again the Son of God and holding up to contempt. So that crucifying language is kind of what we're talking about with, with Peter is that there is, and it's a very difficult are we crucifying again, literally? No. When Christ is coming down in that uh, non-canonical literature, but we take that as an event that actually took place, then when Christ is using the language, now I'm going to be crucified in Rome, that there is a symbolism that you are establishing yourself, and when you return to the faith, that do we accept these people? And this goes into the labella that we get into later. But hold on, Brady, I'll, I'll, let me read the second passage, and I'll ask for your response. Uh, Hebrews 10, 26 through 29 is the second passage where we get for if we willingly persist in sin after having received the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy, quote, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, end quote. How much worse Punishment, do you think, will be deserved by those who have spurred the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which they are sanctified, and outraged the Spirit of Christ? So, that's kind of the crux of apostasy. Once tasted, you abandon. And, yeah, I think, yeah. or you can no, go, go ahead, on, you're about to make a point. I would just say that it speaks to the requirement of transformed living and to use theological language, the need for sanctification. 
And a lot of people always point to Paul and say, justification by faith and faith alone. If that's your claim and that's where your claim stops, you haven't read the entirety of Paul. Paul is constantly pointing towards a sanctified and a transformed way of life, not just for the individual, but for the congregation. And the passages that you just read from Hebrews makes us contemplate what is the relation between living righteously and the grace that's offered because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And I don't think that's something that we take lightly. And if we were to take, in our context, if we take one of those lightly, we take the need for righteousness lightly. We always emphasize the grace of Jesus and completely underemphasize the fact that we are called to righteous living. I think the New Testament argues for the the dichotomy of those things to exist simultaneously. And it's not for us to decide who is going to be saved and who will not. But we can, with confidence, say that Jesus requires something of us. Mm -hmm. And the ultimate requirement of that is to stay faithful to his name and to his gospel in the midst of those things that you've listed, false teaching, pride of life, and persecution. And if we abandon the name of Christ, what it seems like the author of Hebrews is saying is that you will be abandoned by Christ himself and that grace no longer exists for you. Um, That's hard to deal with. It's going to make us uncomfortable. We're going to try to explain that away as best as possible, but I think we need to listen to what he has to say. And that kind of just points out the, I think we want to believe the one saved, always saved. And I do believe that to an extent, but there comes a point and we wouldn't have these passages if there wasn't the opportunity to fall away. And if either one of us were to reject God, I believe that God would deliver us unto our own free will. And that there, if I don't want a partnership with God and if I don't want to live, um, in obedience with God much longer than, or any longer, sorry, for that matter, then God will honor that. And it's an abuse of grace, and I think that's the extreme language that the author of Hebrews is using, that it's not a simplistic, nor something that you can hop on and get off flippantly. That there comes a decisive choice, and whether or not, once you accept it, to reject it, or to um, maintain the faith. And that could be, it doesn't even have to be in modern circumstances in response to persecution or false teaching or pride of life. It can be, and, and you can argue for false teaching, but whatever the philosophical idea of postmodernism or to, to reject Christ on the idea of not building a sound theodicy or response and defense for the suffering of evil. And that's enough to deter many people into saying God is dead. Um, as if the complexities in modern day troubles are new and they haven't existed. And as Brady read second Maccabees, you read the atrocities that took place and we say, Oh, well, 
these people still had faith and that there's still a response to God. Um, so yeah. let me, we're going to need to end soon. And so I, I want to make a statement that I think is going to unify our two papers into a cohesive message. And then I want you to comment on that and then we'll wrap it up. Okay. Um, you mentioned that Paul is writing in the eschatological sense, which means that the end is coming and it's coming near and it's coming fast. Uh, rather than pointing to a historical event in his current context or in the context soon to be after his. With that being said, uh, Jesus has not come back yet. And so because of that, we continue to live in the eschatological age. The end is going to come. The end of this world is going to come. We are going to be ushered into a new heaven and a new earth in the reign of Christ. And because of that, the warning that Paul gives in 2 Thessalonians about a great apostasy is still just as relevant for us. Because the end is coming, and if we read Revelation, the end comes with great persecution of the church, as well as false teachings, and as well as the arrogance of men, the pride of life. And so the context of which apostasy can occur is not just a historical thing, but it's something that is going to come onto this earth. Uh, whether in our, in our lifetime or not, it's coming. And so this idea of martyrdom, and maybe even greater, this idea of apostasy, uh, is relevant for us today, given the eschatological lens that we should be using when having this conversation. So that that would kind of be my synthesis of these topics. Uh, why don't you respond to that, and we'll wrap up. Yes, yeah, so... In tandem with what you said, there's also kind of the elephant in the room that Paul and the apostles, they also left it open for whatever inspiration that they had, that they under also understood, at least in their minds, that the end of the world also could happen, and very much so because of all these prophecies being tangibly seen and fulfilled, quote-unquote, um, in their context, and certainly Christ is coming and returning soon. Um, he didn't. And he hasn't come back yet. That there, it opens that wormhole of there is a continued existence of this to take place, and it's not a like again, again, it's not a single event. From, and it's also what we deem formal persecution, if by the state or not. So, like in as plenty of uh, Islamic countries, there is a formal persecution. Um, and, all, and, and also, many of those, excuse me, many of those cultures, there's a implied persecution or a um, persecution that extends into. There might not be a formal written law about it, but still, people are being beheaded by terrorist groups. Social, yeah, or social. Yeah, so that's the word. Thank you. Social, social consequences. Social consequences. Even from the context of Rome, there wasn't a formal persecution with Nero or. Um, uh, until 250 under Emperor Decius or Decius. So there are, and, and there was also not even a formal persecution under 
Domitian, but in 81 to 96, but still there's a present persecution regardless. Um, and I think it's the, the biggest discernment factor that comes into distinguishing, I, I want to say, false teaching is you have to equip yourself. You have to be diligent in your own studies, and especially in the Western context. When it comes to persecution, you do not go looking for it. You need to, there, there's a calling, a spiritual calling, um, and you'll know. And it's very clear in those stories of martyrs. You can clear, clearly see uh, the calling. And it's an honor, but it's also a gruesome process. Um, and with pride of life, it's to understand the meaning of taking of a cross, which bleeds into um, false teaching, simply because you need to be aware of what this looks like. But And there's there's plenty other subsections of my paper, and I didn't even get to get into uh, um, some other categories, but that would be my overall synthesis um, and main points to stress. But yeah. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us on this episode. If you made it all the way through, uh, we should be publishing this episode soon. And then we'll work on another one in two weeks from now. We'll do better about getting those published in time. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, we hope to see you next time.